today's episode of Be Atento, helpful tips and stories from some of today's most successful entrepreneurs and investors. Be Atento is brought to you by Atento Capital, a Tulsa-based venture fund focused on driving returns through early-stage venture investment and local economic development and job creation. Atento is Spanish for helpful, careful, thoughtful, conscientious, and polite, as we seek to embody these characteristics to all of our stakeholders. Today, we are excited to welcome Rodney Sampson to the podcast. Hey, Rodney, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, how's everything been going for you and, and family and loved ones during these crazy times? Yeah. Hey, Chandler, it's good to, good to hear from you. Uh, yeah, these are definitely unprecedented times. I'm grateful, thankful to have uh, all of my immediate you know, family, uh, wife, six children, two dogs, two turtles, <laughs> um, all in all in one uh, one place. And um, I actually took a trip over uh, to another one of our properties. So we have some quiet, quiet times so that we can record this uh, podcast. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Really, really appreciate it and really appreciate you uh, coming on. So to get started, would love to just, you know, kind of go into, you know, your background, what got you into technology, what got you into entrepreneurship um, and, you know, maybe just some, some stories from some of your experiences. But it really wasn't until 99 when I started working on my first tech company, StreamingFaith.com, which has a lot of context for, you know, the times we're in right now, particularly as it relates to how people are communicating or broadcasting or getting their content out. But it was in 2000 when I saw Mark Cuban had sold Broadcast.com for billions of dollars. That's how Mark made his money. And I remember having this conversation with Mark when I met him originally on the uh, on the Shark Tank set when I was on the production team for a minute. And he was like, wow, man, you use my protocols and platform to basically figure out how to live stream through a media player that we built custom um, using different APIs uh, and streaming codecs that were out there. And the first content we ever streamed was the homegoing service of Dr. Jose Williams who was a civil rights icon and we streamed it live from Elizabeth Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia. Now imagine 20 years ago trying to get this startup off the ground. And I remember going by Jose Williams daughters um, feed the hungry location. And all these people from the movement were there uh, James Orange, you know, some of these iconic figures in the civil rights movement were standing around, they were mourning, they was planning, and, you know, it was pretty open. You could talk, and I was like, well, why don't we stream it? And it's like you could hear a pin drop in the room. Everybody was like, what? What is this kid talking about? And I was like, yeah, we could stream it over the internet so people around the world could see it. And they were like, you can really do that? And I was like, yeah. And we had a week to figure it out. We had been working on it, but we had never done a live broadcast before. So that was the um, first tech company I started in 2000. Our second live broadcast was actually 
the TDJ's Woman Thy Loosed uh, conference that was in Atlanta, Georgia at the Georgia Dome. So we had to figure out how to pull an audio and video feed off of the TV truck that was being uh, uplinked to the satellite because Bishop Jakes would distribute his content across the satellite networks like TBN, the Word Network, and Daystar. And we were able to get a feed and also uh, live stream as well. So that was my first uh, tech company. And back in those days, there were three, maybe four, Black founders in the country. I knew Omar Wasso was the founder of Black Planet. He raised over a million dollars, ultimately had an exit. Clarence Wooten was in Baltimore. He eventually uh, had an exit. Uh, there was Tiffany Norwood, so there was a black woman uh, back in the in the in the mid nineties that also had been incredibly successful. And then it was myself in Atlanta uh, being the co-founder of Multicast Media Networks and StreamingFaith.com. And back then, um, no one was really talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in tech. People were talking about it like in government contracting or uh, corporate minority supply diversity. But no one was really talking about it in tech. And so we all looked up to uh, this OG by the name of Emmett McHenry. Emmett was the original founder of Network Solutions. And I won't go too deep into the story, but if you are black in tech or proximate to tech or want to be in tech, the startup ecosystem, uh, venture space, You've got to familiarize yourself with this history, particularly as it relates to Emmick McHenry. So he had a business, Chandler, called Network Solutions, based in D.C., uh, was very successful, astute businessman, did business with the government. And the government, the federal government, put out an RFP for a company to bid to get the contract to manage all domain names on behalf of the United States government. And at that point, all domain names in the world were managed by our government. Network Solutions, founded by M. McHenry, was the only company to bid, and he got the contract. But now Emmett had to pivot from being a service-based business to being a tech company. He had to have a website. He had to have servers. There wasn't a cloud back then, or at least it wasn't commercialized at the time. He had to have data centers. Back then, when you had to have content or have data or code that was stored, you had to buy your servers, probably from like EMC or um, IBM. You had to buy or lease your servers, lease a data center, and buy your bandwidth and scale from there. And then you had to have computer programmers to build the software uh, solution for your website to be able to you know, offer your product or service. So Emmett went out trying to raise $3 million from everybody he knew, Black churches, 
black colleges and universities, black media. None of them invested 50,000. He was trying to raise 3 million, couldn't raise any money. He got a term sheet for 5 million, but for like 90 plus percent of the company, if I'm, if I'm correct. He took the term sheet. He got rich. You know, he didn't get rich, rich, but he, he took the term sheet, $5 million. Five years later, just go look at, just Google it, Network Solutions. The firm that bought the company from him was acquired for tens of billions of dollars. Tens of billions of dollars, right? So there's a lesson here. Think about every struggling media company. Like I remember hearing about or learning about uh, the struggles of black enterprise and essence and, you know, Ebony and why they discontinued Jet, Say Magazines, uh, HBCUs, the struggles they've had, black churches, the struggles they've had. Right. Imagine if they had just put 50K in that deal. And that company had been acquired Five years later, for tens of billions of dollars, the multi-generational wealth that could have been created. Just kind of touching back, you know, on on streamingfaith.com, you know, there was something there in terms of layering technology on top of something that you already knew well um, and something that you knew that, you know, the rest of the community already knew well. Um I'd love to hear you just speak on that and, and kind of opportunities for entrepreneurs who maybe think that uh, they don't necessarily understand how to build a tech company, but you know they see problems in their communities and in their everyday lives. When you are placed in a position where it is about survival or it is about solving something um, to mitigate risk or to mitigate loss, then something clicks inside of you that you cannot learn in an entrepreneurship support program, a pre-accelerator, accelerator, incubator, co-working space, et cetera. What happens if we can never go back into a physical space because of a new normal? What if we can't meet face-to-face for an accelerator program? Are we saying that we're not going to have any more, you know, disruptive startups? You, you know what I mean? So I think that, and I want to kind of bring this all together for you is if you can figure out how to hack yourself first and hack the pain points that you might be dealing with, then you can apply that to other areas, industries, problems that you can solve as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as an investor, um, or a wealth creator, if that makes sense. You know, on that point of purpose, you know, you've spent time as, you know, a founder who's had success with Exus. You know, you've spent time, you know, as a GP of a fund as well, you know, and, and now you're running Opportunity Hubs and, you know, working more as an ecosystem builder. What kind of stirred in your soul to make you decide, okay, this is, you know, what my purpose is at this point in my life? And then also, could you share with us a little bit more information about, you know, what your ecosystem building work actually looks like? Absolutely. So what motivates me is I don't want to be an outlier. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers talks about this whole concept of outliers. And I think 
what we are experiencing right now in black tech, I'll just brand it for a second. Everyone that you hear about that has success as a founder, that wins a pitch competition, gets in an accelerator, raises a seed round of a million dollars, meet the outliers. You know, are there 1,000 of us on the planet? Are there 500 of us on the planet? 300, 200, right? I mean, if you think about it, and we celebrate our outliers as we should, but if we normalize the celebration of folks who are still the first and the only one and woe unto the person who is comfortable with being the only one, like you're building so that you can continuously say I'm one and done. I did it and nobody else will come behind me because you were intentional, like not opening up your network and not opening up those doors. And so that's the purpose that drives me. And then, you know, um, if I put on my economist hat for a second, I'm a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We see a lot of data, um, you know, and we refer to a lot of other data. Uh, McKinsey has a report that shows that by, you know, end of this decade, Black America will lose 4.5 million jobs due to automation. If you didn't see how that was going to happen in the last month, can't you see how people who have been locked out of education, locked out of careers, and may be working in careers less than what they're skilled for um, or what they ultimately want to be in, even if it's just transition, like the service sector or the hospitality sector, the travel industry, boom, shut down like that, right? So when, when you look at it from that data perspective, I'm like, we're going to lose 4.5 million jobs. The impact of that, and most of that is predicted to be black men. The impact of that on the black community is tragic. And then when you hear the the statistics out of, you know, uh, Center for Policy Studies, their Shared Prosperity Report, New Prosperity um, Initiative, by 2053, the median wealth of a black family will be zero. Uh, and then the median wealth of uh, a Latinx family by 2073 will be zero compared to a steady growth of our white and Asian counterparts, um, which today is around 170,000 for white Americans, 140, I believe. Uh, for Asian Americans or over a hundred. And then it drops down to 13,000 for Latinx uh, or 17,000 for Latinx and then 13,000. My numbers may be a little off, but I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's a chasm and the chasm is going to get worse. So that's what drives me. So ecosystem building, right? It's only been recent, probably the last few years, where the work that we do as a business and we also have a foundation or just as a purpose, because the concept of an ecosystem builder is a new concept. It's really like if you study this new science around ecosystem building or practice, which is being defined by like Kaufman, the Startup America Partnership, which was birthed 
uh, out of the Obama administration with Steve Case and his brother. This whole ecosystem building space is, is a remnant of the Startup America partnership back in those days. So policy was the precedence for a lot of the formalization of ecosystem building work in this country, um, whether it be in government, academia, um, the private sector, the capital markets, you know, research labs, you name it. Um, they're all types of different ecosystem builders where the output is a little bit different than traditional economic development. Traditional economic development, if you studied the whole Amazon 2.0 uh, phenomenon, is, you know, if I work for Tulsa's economic development agency, my goal is to attract companies to Tulsa and retain those companies there. Not so much build new companies in Tulsa and new talent in Tulsa. That's what ecosystem building does. It's focused on skills development, job placement and in-demand careers and new venture creation with high growth uh, probability. And so the traditional economic developers on one side, ecosystem builders on the other side, and now they're starting to kind of merge. The worlds are starting to merge. So in 2013, I was a part of the production team Leading, leading diversity and inclusion for Mark Burnett Productions and basically worked to ensure that Shark Tank uh, was more diverse. What you saw on screen, but also who pitched as well and also in some of the corporate governance practices. Today, my friends, uh, Brandon Andrews, Joshua Dubois, Values Partnerships, lead that effort for Mark Burnett Productions. And so I was doing that for Mark and my Kingonomics book had just come out. And so I combined a Kingonomics conference and a Shark Tank casting call. And that attracted thousands of people to our conferences around the country. The biggest one we had was in D.C. during the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. So like right when all these folks were in D.C., we did a conference that weekend and had over 2,000 people attend, and we did a minority casting call. It was dope. Some people were mad. They was like, why, why are you doing this right in the middle of this? And some folks was like, well, Dr. King was about economics. Absolutely. And at those conferences, Chandler, we asked questions. We did our customer discovery. And we didn't know why we were asking. We didn't know what we, what we were going to do with the data. But we knew that there was something beyond the book, something beyond the conferences. So we ask questions like, if you had an idea, where would you go to build it? Uh, now, today you say, oh, that's we work or your local co-working space. Oh, yeah. You know, incubators like, no, people just didn't know. And so I had seen co-working spaces in Amsterdam, uh, New York. I knew Toby Rush. This brother was really pioneer. Black man was a pioneer of co-working spaces as a co-founder of Citizen Space out um, in San Francisco. And so I was like, oh, we should start a co-working space. So we just started these business models in response to the questions that were getting answered. And so the first one was we create a safe space for black people. Uh, and anybody could come, but we were intentional about making sure that black people felt like they belong there, that there wasn't the racial bias. And we know we have biases within the community, 
But there wasn't the, you know, like you go into a co-working space and folks like, uh, can I help you? And you're like, you know, when you get that question, like, can I help you? It's like, I'm supposed to be here. I'm a member. I'm not going to steal your laptop. I'm not going to steal your street snacks, blah, 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 blah. Yep. So we created that safe space, right? Um, and that was iteration one. That was place-based ecosystem building. We grew, we grew very fast. We had three campuses. And then we went through a merger on the real estate side. Um, then we added programming because people needed more than just place. Uh, place is really a, a commodity, you know, as we're learning now, you know, folks are building from home, right? You folks are, were building in coffee shops. They were building in co-working spaces. Didn't need a traditional five-year lease, you know, for a concept that may or may not work. And so um, from there, in response to the questions we've been asking, folks are like, well, if I had an idea, I want a place to work. But I don't know how to get off the ground. And so we started organizing mentors, people I'd known along the way, you know, having built four companies, failed at two of them, sold two of them, networking, doing deals, putting people together. I had a lot of people that I knew that had built companies and or helped other people build companies. And so we started a mentors in residence program and we attracted 100 mentors. And so every day office hours was going on and we were like, Okay. And then people were like, well, office hours is good, but I need to go deeper. And so we were like, okay, we started mapping out. Today, folks call it a pre-accelerator. And so we started mapping out a pre-acceleration curriculum. How do we go from idea to product? Okay. And then after that, folks wanted to go product to market. So we went from the pre-accelerator to the accelerator and then to the incubator. I mean, we just literally built it in response. And what was also unique was, uh, and my wife had really been pushing me. She was like, we really need to get our kids some of those, you know, steam skills and coding skills and coding. And so I was introduced to uh, John Saddington, one of the original founders at the Iron Yard, which used to be the nation's largest multi-campus coding school in the country. And so people were coming into the hub, like, oh, they were like, "Uh, I got an idea for an app and I want you to invest 50K so I can go outsource it. Here's a contract right here. I've already, I've already vetted three companies. I'm like, wait, I'm going to give you 50K and you're going to go pay somebody to build it. But you don't even know if they're going to give you, you like, you're just a consumer. You hope it looks right. And I was like, well, why don't you just go learn the code? And people were like, well, how do I do that? I was like, well, just go teach yourself. And they like, huh? I so reached out to the iron yard and was like, look, y'all got to come in here and we got to start these coding classes. And that's how we started running the coding classes, which evolved into the coding boot camps, which today uh, we've worked with a, a few different schools, over 300 people, uh, all black and Latinx, mostly black, have been trained as software developers. And many of them have gone on to start um their own their own firm. So ecosystem builders listen, just like founders, right? We obsessively listen because we're trying to get our customers to tell us what their problems are. And then we respond in kind with something that they're able to pay, right? That's the that's the definition of a business is to sell something that people are willing to pay for or companies are willing to pay for. 
if companies aren't willing to pay for it, then you don't have a business. You have a hobby, you know, maybe something you're passionate about, but it's not an actual business. So that's how I got started as an ecosystem builder. And that's how I got started with Opportunity Hub. And we just continued to evolve. A lot of the programs we started didn't work, but the ones that did work, we have now packaged those together and have essentially productized the blueprint so that we could take Opportunity Hub anywhere. Uh, I was having a conversation yesterday with my my colleague and friend, um, the Honorable Mayor Hardy Davis of Augusta. And we were talking about, you know, he calls me, he's like, look, we need to start this future work initiative, fourth industrial revolution initiative. Uh, now's the time to do it with black mayors. And I was like, well, you know, five years ago, I'd have been like, man, I'm focused on Atlanta. I'm focused on Technology Square near Georgia Tech. And I'm like, no, we've got to take OHUB first to the nations, then to the world. So we've moved from place-based only to place-based and programs. And our evolution, which is now being accelerated uh, because of COVID-19 platform, how do we use technology ourselves to continue to build the ecosystem and really it's a supply and demand issue. You know, workforce employers need skilled labor. How do you train them and place them? That was the whole thesis around our OHUB at South by Southwest. It wasn't just to go to South by Southwest. South by Southwest had the density of edge technology experts. Like, look, I believe in gathering people and getting black people together in a safe space. But if black people have been under resource underestimated, undersponsored, underexposed, and we all get together as unexposed as we are, unless we get some type of divine intervention, our knowledge will have limits. Unfortunately, that's just the reality. We were in institutionalized, policy-driven slavery for 400 years. When we get out, we get dripped opportunity. Oh, College is, what is college? Oh, now you can go to college? Oh, great. Go to college. Oh, what is a job? Oh, okay. I can go get a job. Oh, what's a business? Oh, that's when you uh, work for yourself, make money, hire other people. We learn stuff. And when we learn it, we get on it. But what I realized was that they have such, you know, our white brothers and sisters, some of our Asian brothers and sisters or people with privilege, if you're not just talking race, if you also talk class, That's another construct that we have to discuss. When you start looking at the haves and have nots and now looking at the acceleration of the fourth industrial revolution and the future of work, and we may have the haves and have nevers. What we're seeing is that we can't catch up unless we get access. We've got to get into rooms and get into spaces that we can learn and then bring the knowledge and the opportunities back to our communities so that we can create shared prosperity. Because if the gap keeps getting wider, then, you know, Dr. King talked about chaos, our community. Are we going to have chaos or will we have community? And if we don't have community as a country or community as a business uh, ecosystem, eventually we devolve into chaos. And so in order to keep chaos from happening, you have to make sure that those who have been locked out of opportunities get access to those opportunities. And then what they do with them is 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 up to them. And so 
connecting that supply and demand side. That's why we chose South by Southwest. We, we weren't in love with South by Southwest, but they had a mass channel, a density of tech companies that were on the edge and their recruiters were coming to hire. And I said, hmm, if we bring black people, black college students in particular, because I couldn't convince, sometimes it's hard to convince grown black folk to do anything um, except what they know to do. Um, and so black college students listened to us and we were like, yeah, we're going to go to this thing called South by Southwest. They were like, oh, okay, cool. We Googled it. It looks fun. We'll go. And they started getting jobs, mission solved, supply and demand, workforce meets employer. And so that's a part of solving the issues in the fourth industrial revolution. The next one is entrepreneurship, starting new businesses that are growth enabled with capital, with access to customers, and then access to the technical acumen, or what I call the science of entrepreneurship. You can be an expert in your field of problem solving or your field or science, but there are a thousand or 10,000 things you have to learn about building a company from the ground up that you can't always get in a textbook but you shouldn't have to always pay for. And so I think ecosystem builders sit in the middle as a bridge between the unlearned and the learned, the have nots and the haves, if that makes sense. And if we can be the connector, whether we are in Tulsa, uh, whether we are in Atlanta, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, wherever, I think that playbook um, will play out. And now we've gotten the stamp of the Federal Reserve Bank. We published this guide with Dale Gines on building inclusive uh, entrepreneurship ecosystems in communities of color. It took us two years to develop this guide with the Federal Reserve Bank. And a couple of times I wanted to give up, but Dale pushed, pushed through. And now our, our model is recognized, you know, in a guide published by the entity that establishes monetary policy in America, right? So I, I think that that's just a testament to the learning that we've been doing for the last seven years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rodney, I don't want to take up, you know, too much of your time. You've given us, you know, almost an hour uh, thus far, but, you know, I've really appreciated uh, your willingness to just share some of your experiences and, and, and you know, so much of your knowledge and wisdom with us. Um, you know, before we close, is there anything that you would like to share, you know, with our listeners or, um, you know, kind of let them know that you're working on or doing? Well, absolutely. You know, I talked about, you know, starting our ecosystem building work is place based only. And then we added programs and now we're stacking it with a platform and we're accelerating our go to market uh, in the coming months, hopefully even weeks and days. We will be announcing more uh, programs uh, like the new coding initiative we have with Morehouse College, which now because of COVID-19 will be totally remote, which means anyone around the country will be able to apply and, you know, become a software engineer remotely. You don't have to show up face to face. We love for that to happen, but we'll see how things go. Uh, but from a platform perspective, uh, we're putting the finishing touches on a funding portal, um, on an online portal that can connect employers with um, our community, which is now over 5,000 strong. 
Uh, we have an email database of 30,000, which we hope a lot of those people will join our online community once we launch that platform as well. We're about to launch OHUB 365 in April. We're going to start doing virtual one-hour webinars every day, um, focused on future of work, focused on fourth industrial revolution, focused on startup entrepreneurship, uh, new partnership with Capway, Sheena Allen. I'm excited about that. She'll be providing her financial education curriculum to the OHUB ecosystem. So a lot of amazing things that, you know, because things have slowed down, we've been able to accelerate um, in so many different in so many different areas. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Be Atento. Uh, you can subscribe to the Be Atento podcast anywhere where podcasts are distributed. Um, please follow us on all social media. Uh, we are at Atento Capital. Uh, and, and be sure to visit us on our website as well uh, at attentocapital.com. Uh, we want to give a special thanks and a huge shout out to Rant 9 Productions uh, for helping us out once again uh, on another episode. And we look forward to you guys tuning in next episode. Mm-hmm.